Hello and welcome to this microdose from ACFM, one of a series of interviews with a special guest. This episode was recorded in November 2019 with Tabitha Bast, who has since completed her training and is now a fully qualified psychosexual therapist. Due to a couple of technical issues at the point of recording, you'll find the audio quality is reduced in this episode. We apologize profusely for this and hope you enjoy it anyway. Hi, Tabitha. Hi, Maria. Tabitha Bast, thanks for um, agreeing to be interviewed on Dating and Desire. No worries, glad to be here. Really interesting topic. We had a conversation about this uh, some time ago, and you said just some really enlightening things about desire. So um, uh, I was chatting to Jeremy and Kia, and we thought it would be really good for me to have a nice conversation with you um, and enlighten us on some issues to do with both dating and desire, and of course, how that relates to politics. Thank you. Well, as I get older, I like to reposition myself. And now I seem to be positioning myself as a wise crone. (laughs) (laughs) Advise. Rather than somebody who's desirable at dating, I am now the advisor and kind of like the grandmother. You also have experience. You also have a lot of experience. You're selling yourself short. Um, Maybe let's start by... um, you telling the listeners a bit about what you're doing now because mm-hmm. previously you weren't doing what you're doing now or you're trying to move into a field that is in, of interest um, to dating and desire. Yes. Tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, so I am um, I'm a practitioner in training um, as a psychosexual therapist and I qualify next month um, dealing with issues around sexual dysfunction would be the sort of medicalised term right but um a lot of it is around specifically around desire often around female love mm-hmm. desire mm-hmm. although my particular interest in psychosexual therapy is um i'm very interested in younger men and how um and how they how they relate to desire and sex really interesting and of course in terms of your background, like I know you from Plan C and you were like a big activist with Reclaim the Streets in the 90s. You come from this really political background. Mm-hmm. And from the small conversations I've had with you, you've got this kind of, uh, like I said, some sort of like a erudite expression or I think just really interesting things to say about the juncture between like life under neoliberalism like and like a political analysis and like desire and how people go about um conducting the relationships would that be mm-hmm. f- fair in terms of saying that those the, both of those worlds have come together for you a little bit yeah i think i'm um i, <laughs> I come from some sort of maybe some Italian insurrectionary inspired (laughs) (laughs) ideas around desire but desire is about motivation desire is about wanting and um at the moment you can see sort of this this huge movement the massive amounts of numbers of people who are out on the streets trying to bring in a socialist government for example Mm -hmm. is around desire it's around a, a longing for something more it's the craving for utopia. It's a craving for better social relationships. It's a craving for better working relationships. It's a craving for like everything. So it's about a motivation. Mm. It's not a, and sexual desire gets uh, misunderstood maybe as a drive in the same way that um, um, hunger might be. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's much more around a, a wanting and a yearning and that's part of, the part that progresses us on to wanting wanting something more than we have already that isn't about the absence of what there is. That's really interesting. So I guess to start off, if I understand you correctly, we're talking about the frame in which we think about some of these things. So you're saying, if I can just, um, don't want to say summarise, but, but basically if there were two pots and you had hunger in one pot and... Um, like political change or like ideas of utopia and another like re- relational and and sexual desire would fall more in kind of similar to to wanting social change than it would be to you know fulfilling 
real bodily hunger because you haven't eaten for a long time. Is that kind of what we're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So very different, say, from um, a, a maternal protection or something like that. Okay. So sexual desire is um, is very much more in the motivational camp and I would say something like um, a mother's love for her child might much more be in the hunger camp. It's right. much more sort of, sort of quite a, yeah, a base desire, I guess. Interesting. Okay, so maybe let's, I mean, I have no idea which direction we're going to go in, but I'd like maybe to start by sharing with listeners, like the thing that you said, like last time um, I was here chatting to you about this a few months ago, um, and you had just done the Bella Ciao uh, radio show, which was amazing, which I really loved. Um, and I think something you said was sexuality and desire, I think you said, or maybe you were just talking about desire, um, as something that you do rather than you are. And I was really interested in that. And it got me thinking. I thought, well, that kind of makes sense. That's 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 the right way to think about, you know, desire to be with another person or have sexual relations or to have like want for another person. If I if I think about it as um, something that I do, it takes off the burden of needing to identify with that feeling because as you just said, if it's about motivation, then the, the essential there is essentially a form of action there. There's there's movement in it rather than it being something fixed. That's how it made me feel. Is that kind of there to tell us a bit about that statement and where it came from I suppose okay so um I guess it um comes from the quite an existential um reality so that we are only ourselves in relation to other people right we are not a fixed um a fixed and finished product that can present itself to the world in a certain way. Although that is something under sort of neoliberal conditions, that's yeah. what happens. And that's how people tend to perform themselves. As it's like, this is me and this is who I am. And this is like, this is the things I'm into. And this is like what uh, turns me on, et cetera, et cetera. And this, that's just bullshit because actually we only can exist as humans in relation to other people. And even this really fundamental biological level. So I'm sure you and most listeners know that about brain plasticity. Mm -hmm. So um, it's essential for a human baby. A human baby, if it just gets its physical needs met, yeah. will not form the necessary, um, necessary neuro connections that it needs. And that from for that it needs love. But they used to think in the sixties that people stopped developing and that, that, that people's brains stopped at a certain stage. But what we know is that um, constant ex experiences constantly change our brains. So our brains are changed by our experiences. Our brains are changed by our connections with other people. Our brains are changed by love. It's it's on that much of a fundamental level. So this idea that we exist sort of separate to other people and that we can say, um, I am rather than I, I, I do and I connect and I, mm. I changes as if it's a static position rather than a fluid position is, um, it, it's just erroneous. And that's really interesting. If you think about it, if you think about what you've just said, mapping onto, I guess, um, issues of, collectivity versus individualism when you think about that politically in terms of like late neoliberalism and how that affects us and it I guess it would make sense under sort of late capitalism for people to think about themselves as like everything is embodied within mm -hmm, within mm -hmm. me um, and so it, it feels like the radical thing or the progressive thing would be to say you know no, plasticity has to exist and we have to accept that it exists. What are we saying? It's not that you're more than you. It's that the you doesn't exist without other people. Is that right? Yes, which probably particularly fits in with sort of an idea of acid communism. Yeah. Right? And it cannot exist. No. Because who am I? It's like every aspect of myself that I would describe myself is in relation to other people and it has to be and a reaction to all of your experiences and the combination of all of those experiences yeah and so therefore when it comes to des desire it's about the space is are you saying this is about the space between two people 
Um, yeah, so it's, well, the space between two people and also the context that yeah. it all happens in. Okay. So probably more than two people, yeah. is it? Uh, so I think what's really interesting is that when people um, connect with someone else, when somebody falls in love with someone else, basically you get all these like brain changes, of course, you get all sorts of dopamine, you get the cortisol, you get this sort of flood in the same way that you would maybe towards a substance. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then that changes once it becomes a more, uh, if it becomes a more regular relationship, then you get uh, more oxycodone and things like that. So you get all this different brain changes, but it's it's not just you and that person, it's in the space. So it's in the connection that you have with that other person that um that there's also this change and this um, change in possibility mm-hmm. of what there is. Mm-hmm. So when you think about collective movements, for example, mm-hmm. it's not just that you have a hundred people existing together. Mm-hmm. It's what's that hundred people existing together is as an entity. And that is something transformative. So I think it's in really simple mathematical terms, mm-hmm. I guess it's like when one person gets together with another person, it makes more than two separate people right it yeah. doesn't it makes a it can create um new ideas and new thoughts so how does that map onto like collectivity in terms of like groups and big groups and that and that desire for i guess things to change for things to change or for how that affects people's bonds to each other i suppose i'm trying to mm-hmm. i guess once mm-hmm. you said um more than one person i wasn't thinking a group sex situation mm-hmm, i was thinking mm-hmm. back to what you were talking about in the beginning which is like like here comes everybody that kind of feeling like in the in a, of a mass event or a mass party when when part of the joy is that you're experiencing this thing with other people yeah yeah and and i guess that doesn't work if it's all internal to 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 an individual it is by default something where you realize that it's not just you it's not and it's not just about you is that is that fair um yes and i think it's gone really wrong in the past with things like um so in the 70s you yeah. have various sort of um weird cults that were very focused on sort of polyamory and i'm not criticizing polyamory i'm just saying you know it's like they can the various experiments that didn't kind of work maybe partly because they were trying to exist as sort of small isolated groups within within a wider context that was much more focused on the nuclear family Mm -hmm. so (sighs) desire between two people can i think can be quite problematic for collective struggle Mm -hmm. sometimes so some places have uh, some places ban it. So some revolutionary <laughs> armies are kind of like, no, there can't be any kind of personal relationships. Right. Because that's seen as a distraction from the struggle. Okay. So it's distracting from the collective. And there's other ideas that it could also feed into a more general, um, yeah, sort of a releasing and a growing of collective space. Mm-hmm. But maybe you can tell us a little bit more about some of your thoughts about like how you know dating works in like current mm-hmm. society and how people understand desire and like what some of your analysis is or like what some of your thinking and discovery is okay. on that. So just for this interview, I was looking up some um, stats and I found some really interesting ones. Okay. So dating apps have taken over the market, the dating market basically. Mm-hmm. So people used to get together more in pubs or more in the workplace and more in these different areas. And that worked for some people and it didn't work for others. And um, especially it didn't work for uh, sexual minorities or people with specific sexual interests who uh, might be considered with hostility. If uh, if they made those desires n- known very quickly, you mean, in an IRL situation? So like you mean like if you, in the pub or in the workplace, etc. Like those areas didn't work for those people necessarily. Yeah, especially like desires. LGBT communities yeah. or um, people with specific kinks. Yeah. Um, and I think things like dating apps can work really well for people who might have very specific things that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. However, what has happened, I think, is that dating apps have basically cornered the market 
and being the place that uh, people get together. So it's become this compartmentalized place where people get together on dating apps. People don't get together at any other juncture. So what has happened is that there's become a problematization of desire or of flirtation um, that's seen as now quite transgressive. In other, in if it's not online. that is not online in this like, yeah. So basically, it's basically become the norm and it's normative and it's okay to flirt with people or meet people to then go out for dates or to have sex with or whatever online. Is what you're saying that if, if you somebody f- comes up and flirts with you in a pub or whatever, that becomes a bit like, oh, what are you doing? Yeah, so one right. of the stats this that really threw me was yeah. 17% of Americans under 30 believe that inviting a woman for a drink always or usually constitutes sexual harassment. Right. 17%. Okay. Always or usually constitutes... Saying, do you want to go for a drink? Like asking somebody... If you want to go for a drink, and a third, if a man would compliment a woman on her looks, because that is now seen as transgressive by right. such a large percent of the population. That's fascinating, but that, but I guess that's only the case because it's happening somewhere else, right? So yeah. it's not like it's not happening; it's just happening online. Exactly, and it's got to happen somewhere, of course. So yeah, it can happen online, although. There's various different codes around that, of course. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, your classic unsolicited dick pics are part of the course um, amongst male-on-male dating apps. Um, it's considered completely beyond the pale in sort of heterosexual mm-hmm. dating apps, as we've uh, had this discussion <laughs> as we've before. Discussed before. <laughs> um, this is what I think is really the interesting effect. So it's not it's not a problem that people use dating apps. What might be a problem is what happens then to the rest of, of your life. Of your life. Where do does sex happen in or sex or desire happen in this really compartmentalized way? Somewhere else. So for example, the idea of a workplace romance um, has become increasingly yeah, beyond the pale, outrageous. Mm-hmm. This is like this is not okay. It's now mm-hmm. considered completely inappropriate to have a workplace romance. Even things like uh, romances with your friends, often, especially amongst people who are under 30, it's become, well, you know, they're in the friend zone. They're now my friend, so of course I wouldn't sleep with them. Mm. So what do you mean you wouldn't sleep with them? They're your friend. Because mm. <laughs> you like them and you connect with them on, on A level. So that's now written off because sexual contact happens or sexual connection is meant to happen mm. in this other place. Yeah, so I guess... And only in this other place. But what we're talking about is we're talking about the contact. We're talking about the the place where you make it known that you have interest in this other person. Because we're not talking about sex and desire that is only happening through chats or through sending pics. We're Mm -hmm. we're also including people who end up meeting and having relationships, right? Yeah. You're just talking about the fact that going to you're you're less likely if you're under a certain age to go to a party and find flirting normal or being asked for a drink normal because it's now happening like online is where that happens except statistically it's not happening online as much as you think a third of people on dating apps never meet anybody never go on a date with anybody so right. not using, so dating apps is the place where sexual contact has shifted as the socially acceptable place. But for a vast number of people, they're still not then going on the dates with the people. Okay. So sex has gone down as well. So the amount of times people are having sex has decreased quite a lot. But is that not because of other things like... um precarious work people living with their parents like the stress and anxiety of day-to-day life like not having anywhere to go out or take someone home to etc is that also is it can it not just be more of a correlation yeah it could well so it's really hard to know why that's happening so people use dating apps for all sorts of reasons the average tinder user logs on about 11 times a day so what happens is you get the uh, the dopamine rush. Why people say they say they go on, they flick through, 
They um, enjoy the, you know, checking, see if anyone swipes right, see what the options are. The attraction is almost to the app rather than to the possibility of meeting a person. And what has any of this got to do with capitalism? Like, how do you think it's relevant? <laughs> how do you think it is? <laughs> well, so, I, mean, I guess there's yeah. a question around like, because one school of thought would say, well, I mean, this is just another way of meeting people. And sure, the way meeting people has changed. I mean, you're saying statistically there's some people who are not meeting anyone. And I think that's worth looking at. And, you know, the, 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 the percentage of people who are like having sexual relationships is going down. But I mean, that side, there's still a, a, a large number of people who are meeting people through mm -hmm. online. And, you know, one argument is saying, well, it's just a new way. It's just the technology is just the form in which is allowing people because, to meet other people because people have really busy lives. That's the reality of day to day um, living. Um, it's functional. It works. Whereas, of course, there's another school of thought. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive necessarily, but that is about how um, the very, like you said, with the dip dopamine hits and what, you know, scrolling and swiping does is it, it compartmentalizes like relationships and commodifies relationship into this thing. Like you've almost like outsourced the, the meeting of people or the space where you think about meeting of people to this kind of world that exists within the app. And that seems like a really neoliberal thing. And so it has effects. That's what I would imagine, mm -hmm. but I don't feel like I've thought about it much. So I think, I mean, what capitalism, what do what capitalism does classically is take our desires and sells it back to us, right? In a bastardized form, which, um, which is less authentic and less, um, less meaningful mm. for us. So if we have taken and, Sex has been one of the areas that um, has sex is fucking is free is one of the sort of Cuban sayings, <laughs> um, which I think is really useful. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's really important that we keep that as a place where um, we can still sort of relate in a really free out of the market kind of way to each other. But of course, things like porn, things like dating apps, are all these technological advances, uh, advances which bring a lot to people's lives as well. Mm -hmm. It's when it becomes um, a replacement and it's when it, um, yeah, when it affects what happens in other places. So yes, it's sort of a new way of meeting people, but it's the new way of meeting people in the way that um, gyms are maybe the way of having physical exercise. Mm. So what happens in a gym is not the same as what happens if you go for a walk, right? You might still be moving the same parts of your body, but you're not experiencing the whole experience of in the, in the world. And therefore you're, it becomes more of an individualized experience that can happen at this certain time. It's less messy. And I think it's more useful to have messy and gray experiences um, I think lots of like younger people talk about how they don't know how to flirt anymore. How do you come on to somebody in, especially if like a third of people think it's creepy if you, if somebody came on to them when it wasn't in this very established space. So if you're with a group of friends in the pub and a third of people think it might be creepy if somebody was flirting with you, you make flirting so socially unacceptable that it can only happen somewhere else, then people become more and more afraid to flirt and less and less able to flirt. I mean, obviously, like me and you, even though we're not grannies listeners, I'm just saying this, like, <laughs> we are from, like, you know, we are from the pre-internet age. So a lot of our experience of, you know, meeting people, flirting, like going through adolescence, et cetera, happened before the internet for like both of us. And, um, yeah, so we, so, you know, even though both of us have experience with dating apps, it's, I think we must still have the muscle memory of like how to relate to people or something. I really like what you said about the gym versus like walking and how, and how that works. Um, but what that made me think about in terms of what you were saying, um, with flirting in the pub is that there's still flirting online, but it has to happen in like written thumb typed words, I suppose. 
Because eventually you are, like, you're still looking to meet someone in theory, right? But I guess there's people all around the world. I mean, they have this problem, and I don't know whether it's South Korea or whatever country where, like, and in Japan, where people never end up meeting people because they can only deal with this kind of, like, version of themselves, right? Yes, the complexity of real-life human connection is that it's a bit grey and a bit messy. And involves, like, what people look like and smell like and what they're wearing and what they're thinking and just all of the different things that make you human in terms of interacting at that moment. Definitely. Right? Not like a tick list of, this is what I'm into, I'm into the gym and I don't like Trump and things like this. And there's, like, very, very basic um, things of how people would present themselves. Because also, so I think that's really important that people don't know themselves, but people leak. People leak all the time. So all our tells are not in how we think. How you think you're presenting to me um, is not what I'm reading into mm. you. So how I read you is not how you necessarily want to present. So, but what I might connect with and really like with, like with, like <laughs> is how I'm reading you. Mm. So there's all the sort of subconscious and, that could, and you're saying this can only happen when I kind of like meet you in real life, real life because yeah. I might present myself as something online and you might think, oh, that's really interesting. But actually when you meet me, there might be other things that attract me to you and there might be things that totally repel you and there's nothing that that online profile or whatever can help with. Absolutely. And people are shit at knowing themselves. They really don't know what they... They don't know themselves and they don't know what they like. <laughs> and so therefore, going back to what we were talking about earlier, when when you say, I am this, 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 that's actually quite far away from what creates desire, is what yeah, we're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things we think, like, so people seek a sort of subconscious fit with somebody else. So the things you're desiring about somebody might be... All of these things that um, trigger a memory from the past or uh, feel like it um, feeds a hunger that you don't necessarily know you have, um, as well as some of the more like obvious cultural or physical desires. There's this whole realm which you're cutting out of with dating apps, which doesn't mean that dating apps don't work for some people in some situations and some people will can use them as sort of like a place to get together. Uh, a place to meet and then you know and then they start connecting mm. um and obviously it can work for the more functional sex so like grinder works really well for i want to suck you off here's a picture of my dick let's meet you know um and then that's it but in terms of, sort of more long-term human relationships it's it's a much more complex much more complex thing yeah any relationship, regardless, yes, right? Absolutely. So we're not. This is we're not talking about a, a specific uh, mainstream idea of what that relationship is. But what you're saying there is like the contrast between you know meeting up for, you know, a very short sexual interaction on Grindr is very different to any anything there where you see someone more than once because you're going to have a memory of that person, and then what the memory that you have of that person is is complex and is not necessarily articulated. And that your experience of that person then, especially if it's repeated, changes your brain plasticity. So it changes who right. you are. So it's not just that. Um, so I'm not the same person that I was when I first got together with my current partner because we've spent so many years adjusting and changing and flexing to each other. Yeah. So I've... People change. Yeah. <laughs> people change with other people. With other people, and that's, exactly. But it's the only way to change because you can't change by yourself because you don't exist by yourself in the world. That's the right? world. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, that that's, I think, why this is such an interesting, like, topic for us in terms of, like, acid themes is because, again, it's something where, I mean, going back to, again, this thing of how... The, the, I just see it as a burden, like the burden of being like, I am therefore. Mm -hmm, so it's not just mm -hmm. about the checklist, although the checklist I think is, is, is a good way of summarizing it. It's not just saying, I like this, I am this, I am this, which I think was really important that you pointed out is, um, 
is not very useful because people don't know themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also, it's also about who I am changes in relation to you, whether I like you or not. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, you, that we can only find that out when we meet yeah. in real life. Although, I guess, people can fall in love by writing letters to each other or by chatting. That's yeah, possible, absolutely. right? Yeah, um, And I've had some great dating apps experiences. Yeah, I'm not, like, yeah sure. I'm not, uh, I think it's only problematic if it becomes the only place that that happens. And it's more the impact that it, that it makes dirty sex happening in other places. Or sexual desire happening in other places. And do you think that's the problem for me? And do you think that's imp like it's in what level of consciousness does that sit on? So, so it's kind of a, a, you presented it as a bit of like sociological analysis, where like we've seen that because people are interacting in this way online, when they therefore see each other in real life, you know, at a party, in a bar, or you know, at a demo or whatever, they're then unable. And like you just said, it makes that space dirty. But is it is it is it the app itself, or is it or is it the way that we are functioning in society? Like, how did we get to this? Which bits do we need to unwind to 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 stay with you know a radical progressive way of what we want as human beings? Well, I would guess the desire involves risk because desire is motivation. It's the reach beyond who you currently where you currently are, right? Mm. So. Desire involves an element of risk, and I think that we are in a very risk-averse society. So some of the kind of um, the craving to make it as safe a space as possible for everybody's lives means that risk is taken out of everyday scenarios or the pub or public spaces mm -hmm. and things like that. And I think maybe what's happened is the market has responded to that. So the dating app is a convenient way because that has to happen somewhere. Mm. And if that dating app didn't exist, but it's not necessarily because the dating app exists that it doesn't, it's less likely to exist elsewhere. It's kind of a combination of mm. factors. So it's a combination of a social movements that are very prime to create as um, yeah safe and risk averse lives as possible. Mm, but to be devil's advocate, it almost like that makes sense. Like, uh, like talk, safety mm. and the way that it's talked about in politics um, is kind of it makes sense as a reaction to you know late capitalism when everything seems risky and if you know you're not sure if you can pay your rent and you're not sure if mm -hmm, you can mm -hmm. uh, if your job is going to last for very long or whatever you at least want that certain space to be safe i mean that might be quite a naive way not a naive a simplistic way of putting it but i can understand how that bleed mm -hmm. therefore goes into you know spaces of like politics and interaction and then therefore how it can mold people into thinking well, I want to calculate. I want everything to be calculated because in that space I have control. Whereas, of course, there's no beauty in that. But this is the constant paradox. So right. um, I I would recommend everyone do uh, look into Esther Perel if they don't know her already and they're listening to this. But she talks about sort of the paradox and the tension between Love and desire, freedom. Say and the security. name again. Esther Perel. Esther Perel, because we can. We're going to do a reading list, so feel free to mention any things or tracks. Or okay. Also, want. my two people that I recommend yeah. everybody reads is Esther Perel and uh, Emily Nagoski, mm -hmm. who uh, has written an amazing book called "Come as You Are," which is all about uh, female desire. So Esther Perel talks a lot about the tension between um, love and lust. Mm. And it's freedom and security is another way to look at it. So humans have always wanted to be safe and secure. But you also need kind of the the risk and the challenge and the, the pull. And it's not that they are in opposition to each other, but that you have to work out the tension between the two. Mm. And that's where you get the relationships where people stay forever in love and um, still, you know, want to shake each other's brains out after... Um, 21 years together mm -hmm. and that's how you create that space by having having both those things operate at once together sounds like the sweet spot except it's not a spot it's like two things in motion 
Right. Exactly. It's two things in motion and, um, and at different times. And it's the flexibility. If one of you just has a parent who dies, you're going to be focusing much more on the security and the comfort rather than, say, some of the more risky elements or the independence. Mm. It's about movement and transformation. Mm. Where does trust come into all of this? So trust is complicated as well, though, isn't it? So trust, some people might think trust is uh, knowing that someone might let you down, but you don't know that someone might let you down. You can't know that someone might let you down because they might well let you down. People will let you down a certain percentage of the time, even the person you most uh, love and need. Mm. And, um, and that's okay. So maybe trust is more about the resilience of being okay with being let down sometimes mm. or knowing that you're not a child, you're not a helpless baby or an adult, so you don't need somebody to meet your needs 100% of the time. And I think um, there can be a bit of a like childlike state <laughs> mm. for some people when they talk about trust. So it's like, you know, as if, as if everybody is going to meet their needs for safety and security and reassurance and that they should be, everyone should be like loving and kind all the time. And that's, that's just not going to happen. Mm. So because it's, we're human. Yeah. And it's, about, stop, yeah, right? exactly. And it's about the, it's, it's like the tension again. It's because there has to be the right amount of tension between um, risk and security. Mm. So I guess it's, it's a bit to trust, but it's also to do with resilience. Like, how do we build that resilience? So how do we build resilience? That's a huge question. Because it feels like it's all part of the same thing. I don't know where you start. You start by saying, well, we need to trust each other more and be more forgiving to our human interactions, which will maybe free our desires, which will enable us to have better relationships, which would then mean we can trust each other more and build like relationships and collectivities that are more resilient. So on a really basic CBT level, thoughts, behaviours and actions are all linked. Mm. I would say, and there's a Buddhist saying actually, that uh, right thought follows right behaviour. And I think that's really useful. As in it's in the practice. You practice you act, and then you feel. Mm-hmm. So I think there's almost a backward way of doing this. I'm like, well, I can't do this because I don't feel it or I don't think it. But no, just I totally do it first. I agree with you. I do totally it first. You. So you don't need to trust before you take that person's hand and go, we're going to run through this police line. Do take it. Take the hand and you do it. Yeah. And you see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> This is so, so interesting. You take I was just risk. having this conversation. And that's what, and I think to bring it back to desire, so this whole idea of like, well, I can't fall in love with somebody because I don't know if they're the one. Of course you don't, if the, there isn't such thing as the one anyway. But like, of course you don't know who they are and everything about desire is a leap of faith. And it's, it's that's, the, that's the motivation. That's the kind of like the draw. So it's the call towards that you're like, I kind of don't know why I'm drawn to this and I want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm really, really compelled to do it. Or rather, here I am doing it. Oh, look, (laughs) I am doing it. I mean, that tends to be how things happen with me. It's like, (laughs) I'm in the middle of this. Oh, that's a surprise, but it must be something subconscious. And then you can can analyze it later or whatever, or overthink it later. I mean, that, that seems like a better way of doing things. Obviously... Nobody's condoning, like, going into things with bad intentions. But sometimes it's going to be messy. Yeah. Right? Yes, it's often going to be messy. And love and sex are often messy. Because you don't know what, you don't know what box you're opening for yourself and the other person. And, like, the, for both yourself and the other person and this kind of new scenario. Okay, so when you were talking about that, that made me think about a conversation I was having the other day... Um, um, about exactly that, about that Buddhist saying type thing, which is what I would call in the practice. Mm-hmm, so in mm-hmm. the sense that when you do yoga, there's no, I like, there's no thinking about doing the yoga that's going to make me want to do the yoga if I don't want to do the yoga. But doing the yoga is going to give me the feedback loop mm-hmm, that doing mm-hmm, yoga mm-hmm. works and is also going to produce the effect of a better stretched body. I breathe better, etc. For example. 
But what I was having, when I was having a conversation with this person, the thing I was talking about was because I've thrown myself into things uh, enough times in my life, I've got enough of a feedback loop that this sometimes works. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I continue to do it because I have a feedback loop that tells me that it's in the practice, that I'll find out if I like this after I do it. Yeah. Whereas I think there are some people, and I mean, you tell me whether you think this is the case with desire and sex, where because the, the whole setup is you have to overthink everything before mm -hmm, you do mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. then you've not had the experience of the feedback loop in the first place. So unless you get, unless you change the context quite substantially how are you ever going to start the trying before the thinking in a sense like that's what that made me think of exactly no i think that's really true and that's all your question about how do you build resilience that's the answer through feedback loops mm. which is kind of like i mean the extreme way of looking at it is you fake it until you make it which is not entirely <laughs> true but i think like both it's not entirely untrue <laughs> it's not untrue either you know it's like well neither with the police lines or with, you know, telling someone that you fancy them or whatever. Mm -hmm, it's like, mm -hmm. I guess, I don't know if it's useful or not to be thinking about like, what's the worst that can happen? Because even that as a way of thinking, I think is partly problematic. I mean, obviously people who put themselves in grave danger in an interpersonal level or like in a political level is, you know, there is an ex there are extremes. But I think what we seem to be saying is, is like putting... Of being risk averse and mm -hmm. the center of how we go about relationships and politics is not forward. There's the, there isn't then a forward trajectory. There has to be risk, right? That's what we're saying. There yeah. has to be risk. So a child learns by, um, when a child first learns to walk, they walk and they fall over. And you have to rush not to pick them up because they pick themselves up and then they learn to walk and they do it again. And they carry on doing it even though they're getting hurt. And that's also how we have relationships. And you first fall in love and it's awful because they don't love you back. And it's really, really gutting. And you have mediocre sex and it's a bit disappointing. And you have some bad sex. And, you know, there's like, and then you have great sex. And then there's just like all these different experiences that become this accumulated um, experience. I've got this, I've forgotten her name. A um, feminist who wrote about uh, me to... Uh, critique basically the mm. Me Too movement on campus and she her question was how do you know but how do you know if a pass is unwanted until you make it I think that's a really great question and I think we've become so concerned about the unwanted pass and as if that's um the fear of being a predator is huge right mm. and um yeah that 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 question because it's so it's become so demonized part of that just like leave me the fuck alone mm -hmm. vibe and I don't just mean with like sex and flirting I mean like with everything politically is 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 a kind of is a hopelessness I feel mm -hmm. it's kind of a, it's a turning in it's a it's a like wanting to like just be with yourself now it might be that we're talking about an articulation of that which involves a lot of people you know, in and I don't want to say that particularly for me too, because I don't think I've so much formed an opinion on that or know enough about it. But it it's that yeah, like the, the kind of don't touch me, both in the literal and metaphorical sense. It feels to me is very much related to late capitalism. It's like you don't have the headspace to deal with this, or you don't have the internal power to push back, almost in that moment. So. You said you wanted to do a defense of men. Popular. <laughs> What's this got to do with anything? Go on. You called it, what, the problematization of men. Yeah, I think, right. the, boy, I think the boys are all right. The boys are all right, okay. And this is, this, the, the context for this is that your research involves, is focused on young men mm -hmm. as well. So this is something that you've been thinking about in a, you know, this is not an idea that you came up with in the pub last night and you thought, this is what I'm going to record. This is something you've been thinking about and experiencing in relation to the people who you've been seeing. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And I mean seeing, again, clarifying, in your <laughs> clinic. 
right? Um, some of it has been clients and some of it has been friends. Mm-hmm. And um, and then with my research specifically, I was looking at uh, younger men who um, identified as younger men from the left, basically. Mm-hmm. But I've been thinking quite a bit about um, where do where is the kind of the guidance and the encouragement for men and sexuality? And you know, I'm a mother of a 13 year old boy. Mm-hmm. I I desperately want my child to have a positive idea of his own sexuality. And he came to me and said that. Um, he was talking to me about toxic masculinity and he thought it meant that all masculinity was toxic. Okay. And the whole state of being a man was toxic. And we talked about that and that made me want to cry. I was like... That's pretty dark, yeah. That's really, really dark. And I think that is actually some of the messages that the left in particular is sort of giving out. The idea, if you're cis and straight and male that you are beyond redemption or that you in yourself are problematic and you should carry some shame of being. And that's bullshit. Just as you've said that, I I feel like I've actually ironically had to do a lot of... Okay, it was not emotional labour because I don't like the way that term has been overused, but I feel like I've had a lot of interactions where men have said to me things along that line which almost seem like Christian in the articulation about themselves as men. And I've just been like, chill out. You're a really nice guy. I don't know. Has been my response, like in terms of like toxic masculinity and needing to do work on themselves and stuff. So tell us more about what you mean. Um, that I think, so from the left, what gets thrown out in terms of men and sexuality? What are the messages? I think there's kind of two <laughs> Okay. And one is the uh, the idea of the predator, that men are fucking terrifying, that men male sexuality is, you know, there's the rapist, there's the sexual abuser, there's the, you know, there's all this, um, like the, the Weinsteins of the world. And then the other is the loser. So that's this idea of shaming men for having shit opening lines when they message on dating apps um it's that men are a bit crap that men don't know how um how to come on to girls and it's it's these two (laughs) these two places that that male sexuality has ever sort of talked about from the left Mm. on the right we've got a really strong so you've got the whole pickup artist stuff or the alt-right messages for men, and that is so the pickup artist stuff is all around. There's certain things you can do to get more sex with women, and then some of the really, um, really dark incel stuff is if you're a loser, you're never going to get a woman. But there's it's a very much like a misogynist, yeah, hatred. Yeah, it's uh, women not as people, women as things that need to be like conquered with a certain strategy or whatever. Yeah, because women are evil and wrong and whatever, especially with the the incel stuff, definitely. But I think partly there's an absence of a place which says this is what a healthy and good male sexuality looks like and that is why these places have bred. So these, um, all the incel stuff, it's like what? where do geeky boys get their advice about how they should how they should desire what's okay how they should desire women etc i mean how should they what's the what what's the answer to that problem i think the answer to the problem is first of all that there's nothing shameful in fancying somebody fancying somebody and fancying women and being a bit clumsy about it and not quite knowing what to do so i think there's stuff around that that i think is that is absent so what needs to be done on the left? Is it that we're saying the left is going to lose all of its men to the alt-right, all of its No, no, right? not what at we, all. What, what are we saying? What I'm saying is that there, um, that there's almost like a culture of call-out and shaming. Whilst at the same time, women are not shifting massively from their position to being more active. 
One of my other good stats that I wrote. Go so OkCupid did a dating survey. It had 1.5 million respondents. 75% uh, of women, 6% of men said they were feminist. Um, but less than 1% of women said they would rather do the pursuing. I'm definitely in that 1%. <laughs> my rule on OkCupid was I message first. Me too. But the vast majority of women... <laughs> are not the first people who will message, even though they are more likely to um, to feel like they have far more messages than they want from unwanted messengers. Mm-hmm. So one of the other um, open secrets, I guess, mm. about dating apps mm. is that um, people aim up. So one of the reasons we're probably in the 1% is because we know it works in our favour because I will always message someone much more attractive than me. Mm. So when you get people on dating apps saying they've had loads and loads of unwanted messages or messages from people that they aren't interested in, what they mean is messages from people below them, don't they? But that sounds like we're all doing this like stratifying thing in some kind of like yeah. alpha beta, whatever. I don't know. That I makes think that's, me uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable, or... but that's the uncomfortable truth of the, the dating apps thing, isn't it? But are you saying, but presumably if you're saying you're reaching up and reaching down, you're saying that's reflecting like some kind of like uh, stratified system that exists in real life society. Whereas we know that, sure, somebody can find somebody else attractive, but it's more complex and fully formed in real life than it is from a picture or whatever. Yes. Or when your mate has written your profile. Yeah, although there's still going to be a certain... There is a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy. There is a hierarchy of physical attractiveness. There's quite base level in our society about what people judge as, say, an 8 out of 10 and a 4 out of 10. Oh, I hate that so much. You might hate it, but I bet in your dating apps... In my dating history. In your dating history, (laughs) it reflects... Something that. I did in my brain. And I think it's that's the uncomfortable truth. So when we talk about an unwanted past, what we mean is someone, a past from someone we think is below us. Let's come back to talking about this in the left. So we mm-hmm. started this section by you saying, I'm going to do, what's it called? The prob- Talk about the problematization. No. Was it problem? The problematization of male sexuality. Male yeah, sexuality. Okay, so how, like, what is the proper left response now, like what do like what do we do? What's the progressive thing that the left needs to do to I mean I don't want to say defend men, but to like solve this particular problem. And because I think quite movingly you related it to like bringing up your son in like how do we create how do we create an environment where men feel like it's okay Mm-mm. to come on to women in you know, or make a pass or whatever. And I guess it's, it's about risk and stakes because what, what I think what you're saying is that there are environments on a particular part of the left, I think we're talking about, where men feel completely unable to act um, and that, that that is problematic and it's not progressive. That's what we're saying, isn't it? So I think, I think there's a couple of different things and I think one of them is what the um, alt-right provide, which we don't, is um, it tells people what to do rather than not just what not to do. So I think on the left we go, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this. And whilst at the same time a lot of women are like, oh, men are so emotionally illiterate. It's like, well, if someone's emotionally illiterate, guide them through what they should do, not tell them what they shouldn't. So explain to people what you like about them as well as what you don't. I think what the problem is, is that many women want men to take, many women on the left still want men to take the lead in terms of sex and dating. So I think that's stepping up and taking more ownership of, so women taking more ownership of their sexuality and being a bit more forthcoming and acting, maybe doing that thing of right behaviour, right thought follows right behaviour. I think there's something around... um, like many, many women have far more, the one area of fantasy that women fantasize much more about than men is BDSM. Many more women fantasize about power play um, than men, and mostly that's about being submissive. And um, that's not to then problematize that, but it's to say that um, 
maybe sort of stretch those fans. Don't just stay stuck in the static mm, place mm. where you're like, because I want this and this is my sexual fantasy, then I always want them. But doesn't this all, I mean, again, I, I don't know, I can't help thinking, well, this all kind of makes sense because this is what happened when, you know, you went from the roaring 20s you know, in this like downward spiral in terms of like sexual freedom and like women's behavior in public and whatever from, you know, the 20s um, to the 1950s, you know, in Western Europe, when you kind of like went from what was quite like a, in cities, like a, so I'm making a huge generalization here, but like socially liberal um, environments to like the 1950s being like the very fixed gender roles because, you know, this is how women need to behave in terms of industrialization. And of course that had a direct relation to like capitalism and work and like the production line and the fact that you like needed a woman to fulfill all these certain roles for a man and it kind of affects sociality and whatever and therefore affected gender roles and sexual roles, etc. And aren't we just going through a period like that because of where we are in terms of the cycle of capitalism in that we are in a point of crisis. So women are saying... I've got all of this fucking shit going on in my life. I just want somebody else to ask me out on a date and pay for it. Or, you know, like make me feel good because mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. living under late capitalism and I'm a single mother or whatever. And I'm being disproportionately discriminated against by the system. Like this is what's happening to my rent and precarious work or whatever. I just want a man to quote unquote, be a man, which is hugely problematic, but somehow in terms of the kind of, I can kind of see that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I can see it as like a function of, you know. So Fifty Shades of Grey, massively popular book um, because lots of women just don't want to be in the caretaker role. They want to relinquish that responsibility. They want someone else. They want at least a space in their life where somebody else steps up and looks after them. Yeah. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. So, and that's fine as a fantasy, but also you're not going to have that if you. So there's two things, isn't there? There's one that we need a we need to destroy patriarchy, of course. Fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> Fuck the patriarchy. So, but you need a situation where. Um, so it's not just about yeah. It's not just about. I'm not just trying to put more work on women, but. I'm saying there has to also be space for um, men to risk making mistakes, otherwise men are just going to retreat. And that for us on the left, we have to make sure that there is a space where men can take risks and flirt with women and get it wrong and not be totally like ridiculed or ostracised or kicked out of your political group or whatever. Absolutely. That's, and that that's women, women can do the same too. Of course. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that everybody can be a little bit of a fuck up. (laughs) We want the space to fuck up, basically. Yeah. We want the space to fuck up and not for it to be like overanalyzed. I think in everything, really. I feel like we've, we've, we haven't solved that, but we've made an offering. Mm -hmm. We've made an offering to the listeners. Like basically everyone chill the fuck out. There's some big problems out there in terms of like real actual abuse of women um, and men, and of course, everything that capitalism is doing, like, let's make sure that we have the space to make mistakes in terms of how we relate to each other. And that means, like, in terms of flirting and sexually and making passes and making political mistakes as well. I mean, for fuck's sake, we have to be able to, like, get things wrong sometimes, be able to break through together. So let's now talk about authenticity, because... Again, last time we had the same conversation where I was, where I thought I have to interview Tabitha for ACFM. <laughs> um, was this? Uh, you kind of did one of your Tabitha. I'm going to make a statement and then stay quiet and like not <laughs> and nod. And I was like, oh, this is so profound. It's going to make me think. Which is that you said you talked about pleasure, not performance, and that particularly interest that that does interest me, especially. In terms of thinking about what it is to like be ourselves, and of course we've just deconstructed the self as being in relation to other people, so that's an interesting thing to to talk about, what it is to be authentic when um, yourself is really mm-hmm. something that only exists with other people. But um, leaving that bit aside f- for a minute, I think both politically as well, you know, on the left there's loads of performance going on, you know, and and... 
I'm mostly attracted to spaces where I feel like people aren't performing mm-hmm. and where it is a little bit messy and people are able to kind of be whoever they are that day or bring their various different, you know, weirdness or quirk- quirkiness without that having to be performed or boringness or whatever to a space. Um, and I think you were talking specifically in that case about, you know, relationships and uh, and sex. So how does... Um, issues of like performance or presenting a certain self kind of relate to you know 21st century like dating apps and and stuff well i would say it's one of the main things with erectile dysfunction is um a over over focus on performance not pleasure so again to uh that's very specific. You're talking, we're talking about sex, like a very specific kind of performance, like literally a man performing in sex. Yeah. But I think that can often be how it feels for men the first, at least the first few times. And women too, to a, um, in a slightly different way. So um, I think women's performance is often more around feeling like the object of desire. Therefore, they, um, it, we're talking about, heterosexual sexual engagement here so that might be more around um having a, the better body and um male focus is on the performance of giving giving good sex by having a hard dick etc mm. etc mm. those things can can tend to be like the main detractors from enjoying sex isn't this always been the, the case forever and ever yeah I think probably. Um, I think, again, it's changed according to cultural norms. Mm-hmm. Um, so there can be certain pattern shifts based on new things about what becomes more normal. So, for example, it might have been um, at some point in time, it might be the performance for women might have been um, performing duty function. And now it's performing several orgasms every time you have mm-hmm, sex, mm-hmm, etc. So mm-hmm. that kind of performance changes. So my my takeaway for virtually all my clients would be around um, taking yourself away from that performance and back into the pleasure of human flesh mm. and that interaction and um, putting yourself back into the body. And is that what you mean by, like, talking about being authentic? Like, when we talk about authenticity, is that the same thing? Yeah, I guess it's like, so, yeah, I think um, performance, I mean, everybody performs themselves to a certain extent, of course, but performance and authenticity can often, like, work against each other and letting yourself be all the ways that you... um don't necessarily perform. So, for example, um, I perform, um, I like to perform funny and um, capable. Mm. And actually my authentic self might be a bit more complex than that. It mm. might be a bit more like <laughs> pitiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I think I most authentically connect with people who can also see those other sides me my one of my favorite quotes is um david schnarch talks about how intimacy is the um disclosure of self in the presence of another yes i did did you put this up somewhere (laughs) so say that again intimacy is the disclosure of self in the presence of another and he talks about how that can be that doesn't mean comfortable so sometimes people talk about intimacy being like either people meet t- say intimacy meaning sex or they say intimacy meaning like you know when you're really close and comfortable with somebody and actually intimacy can be really uncomfortable intimacy is that moment when someone you know really well says to you i think you're not being okay at the moment with this person i think you're being cruel mm can be really, really uncomfortable. Because it's that, it's it's somebody, going back to our the conversation we're having right at the beginning, because it's somebody who knows you so well, mm. better than yourself at mm-hmm. that moment, is that they, there is that closeness of being able to reflect back to you something that 
you have a you have a mechanism of blocking your own understanding of at that moment. Exactly. And your performance might be so if you were performing, you might say, um, no, you're wrong. If you were being intimate and authentic at that point, you might be like, shit. I think I was a dick. Yeah. But also that's that's kind of related to what you said about risk because I guess that's authentic in a way because the relationship is based on like the risk that you've put yourself into expose yourself to that other person to be in a situation where somebody can say to you the way you've dealt with that other person is not okay mm, and really what mm. you need to do is go you know apologize or you need to change your behavior or whatever and you're not performing the perfect version of yourself or what you're supposed to be etc and that goes back to what we were saying about like relationships are messy like the the sooner we accept that the sooner that we probably have more space in mm-hmm. our heads to be like better people and i don't mean better on a kind of like moralistic sense i mean like people who are like kinder and more empathetic to yeah, other human yeah. beings right because that's what we want we want to, to create the sort of society where people have space, both because they're not being, like, screwed over by <clears throat> the state and by social conditions, but also not being screwed over by their comrades in being forced to, like, perform this self that, that means that they don't have the space for empathy and they don't have the space for being wrong and they don't have the space for, I don't know, being human. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And feeling yourself capable of being loved with all your your faults and your weirdness. And your history and your fucking shit. And <laughs> and the expectation that you're gonna change. So that's that's some of the intimacy, I think. Like, yeah. Not just someone goes, Oh yeah, you know, you're gonna be your you were a dick to that person, I'll tolerate that. But rather you're a dick to that person, I think you shouldn't be. Mm. <laughs> and that so that change is possible. Yeah. That change is possible. Transformation of the self through the relationships that you have. And and removing the burden of being to be this complete thing at the beginning and at the end of an interaction, which was always and will always be total bollocks. Absolutely. Ta-da! Shall we end it right That's here? That's a good way to end, yeah. Let's end it. Thank you, Tabitha. <laughs> Thank you, Nadia. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.